so much, Lindsay. Um, well, if you haven't been with us uh, or first time, we had <coughs> we, we get emotional a lot, but last week was particularly emotional as uh, Jared and Krista shared of their uh, amazing but sudden news of, of a shift uh, that the Lord surprised them with. And, and so um, if that's new to you, you can, we've, we've, uh, we've sent messages out, emails and, and some video and whatnot. But, but first and foremost, we just want to say, and we'll share more of this, they, it'll, they have here until October. Um, and they are elders of the church. Uh, Krista, in, in the immediate season, has been our, our worship pastor and, and over our kids' ministry with Sue. So it's a, it's a major shift um, for us. But what we shared very briefly last week, and I just want to reiterate, is that we're, we're dealing, number one, with our own emotions. That These are just our, our, our close friends that have been with us from the living room of planting this church. And so we're processing that, and we just thank you for the grace um, in the midst of that. Then at the same time, to affirm that we actually feel like this is of God. Not just like, oh, it might be, and it feels nice, and we trust their heart, or something like that. Um, that happens all the time in churches, by the way, the trust your heart thing. And we do. But we really do affirm this is of God and that God is moving, and that he's moving here, and he's moving with them. When you're in, when you're in the purposes of God, uh, you don't get to say that, that my team is moving and your team is not. When you're, when you're building the kingdom with your friends, uh, you know that God can speak, and, and his goodness for them is his goodness for you, even if that means painful departs. And many of you that live here, you have to say goodbye to friends and family like we did to move here. And so it, in many ways, it was kind of uh, after I got at least over that first hump of shock, for me, it was just digging deeper into the ground that God has put me in Los Angeles. And I want to invite you guys that are here with us. Process these amazing friends. And, and in many ways, you can grieve even their leaving like we have to do. And if you don't know them, that's okay. Just pretend with us for a little bit. If, if they're new to you, just give us a little bit of some, some cushion. Uh, but dig deep into the place that God has you. Do not guard yourself from numbing to the world out of fear that you're going to have to let go of something. Dig in. Commit. Enjoy the purposes of God. And that in an eternal kingdom, we live with the conviction that I can be told tomorrow that my time is up here and go elsewhere and I can be okay with that because I'm living with a different kind of perspective on the rest of the world. And at the same time, commit to the fact that God might have you here for way longer than you imagined. And where he places you next might not be where you want to go. And if your entire identity and purpose in life is based on a location, you're living far beneath God's privileges and purposes for your life. Amen. And then the final thing, um, is just an utter sense of thanks. So our, our initial three things are our own emotions, uh, our own affirmation to them, and then thirdly, thanks. I just can't thank them enough, wherever they're at. I don't even, they're probably with kids. Uh, I can't thank them enough for the investment they've made in our family and the sacrifice that they're going to make leaving family behind in order to step into God's purposes. So I just want to say that really quick as we transition to today, hopefully a very concise and brief message. <laughs> we have been preparing um, for this 40 days of purpose that'll start uh, last Sunday of this month and really into September. So what I want to do today is, is just kind of um, continue kind of a transitional thought process at preparing ourselves for that. 
at looking at the concept of meaning, and I want to ask the question, where are you actually looking for your meaning in life? And I, I have this awareness in my own life, is that why, why in some ways I, I think that I'm very spiritual and I can nod my head to all the right things. The way of the world dilutes my convictions of what my life is about and my life's meaning. And what do I mean by that? This stand is far too low. That's about right. Can you just make it about like that, Alex? That would be fantastic. Sorry. I've uh, dropped this a few times, but not today. Not today, my friend. Thank you. That's, uh, no, I don't need that. Yeah, thank you. This will be close enough. If someone wants to adjust that slightly um, to when you get it before I pull that out again. But here's, here's what, what my goal is today. I want the Holy Spirit to both comfort us and to convict us. Uh, I, I have this sense that uh, if we would press in to our purposes and where purpose begins, instead of what's just right in, for, right in front of you today, that we would start to understand meaning in a different light. Many of us Christians, we, we cannot agree with that. But, but here's what I realized in my own life this week. When I focus on that I need to know my purpose, my job, my calling, my unique contribution, the relationship, my forever person. When I focus on mine, all my efforts and all my unique contributions, I can lose all of those things. And if I can lose them, there must be a better purpose and meaning for my life. And this is where eternity is absolutely critical. The, the secular storyline of today is, is that you determine your purpose and your meaning for your life. You have to create it. You can't discover it because there's nothing to be discovered. Because ultimately, when you get really dark with all the philosophers of, of, of modern, secular modernism, those guys that talk about things in the eternity, they get really dark and depressing, and a lot of them take their own lives, and I don't mean to take that lightly, but it's because what they ultimately realize is that, yes, we can try to make a meaning out of, out of our lives, out of, out of what we contribute to society, but ultimately, here's the problem, is that in a billion years, when, when the secular mindset and story is that you will not exist, we will not exist, and nothing that we did here will matter because we'll be a blurp on the map of the billion stars that will eventually burn and come and go. If that is all there is, then yes, it can feel better to live this life with trying to help the people around you. But ultimately, it does not matter. And there is no meaning to life. And the invitation then becomes you have to create some kind of meaning out of your life because there isn't any. That is the explicit story that our world is ultimately telling us. And, and what I mentioned a couple weeks ago is this. That is not the belief structure of most of the world. That is the belief structure of a lot of people of the West that is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Uh, in fact, the numbers look a little bit like this. Uh, for instance, outside, outside the West, in Korea, many of you have Korean heritage. It's gone from 1% to 40% Christian in 100 years in the 20th century. 1% to 40%. In China, the increase is even bigger, and, and they, they think and believe that 
China will have a larger population of born-again followers of Jesus than America in a very short amount of time, probably with, within uh, uh, less than my lifetime. Africa, just as one example, the Catholics have grown from 16 to 170 million in the last century. 16 to 170 million, and that's not the largest body in Africa. The point of this is that the Christian movement is exploding, and it's not white, and it's not Western. It's incredibly diverse. And if we want to understand the world that we live in, if we want to understand the globe that we are called to bring an influence to, we have to understand what faith looks like, and that three-quarters of the world's population has a deep conviction of some kind of faith. And the world is not getting more secular. Maybe some Americans are getting more secular. That population is growing, uh, is shrinking, excuse me. This is a Western imperialistic idea, to quote Tim Keller. If you want to talk about imperialism, the idea that secular thought is growing and that it's only in these less advanced, less educated societies that faith grows. It's a lie. It's a lie. And we get the privilege of letting that truth shape our entire way of life. The problem that I want to invite us into today is if we can go back to that starting point. As we prepare for purpose, let's reflect on meaning. Where are you looking for your meaning? And we have to start at the beginning. And if you turn to John chapter 1, uh, I want to I just pull out a couple things from those verses. John chapter 1. Or the bottom one. So purpose, it comes down to where you start. And we often start it with ourselves. Here's what we want. We want true freedom. We want a depth of, of meaning uh, that a death camp can't solve if it takes it away from us. A pandemic can't take away from us. That our relationships can't take away from us. And in John chapter 1, we all know the verses. I'm just going to fly through it really quick here. It says, in the beginning was the word. John that wrote this is going back to Genesis. And he's reminding the people that are reading his letter that in the beginning was the word. And he's not talking about scripture, and yet he is. He's talking about Christ, and he's using this word that the Greeks would know that's called logos. And when we hear this, most of us Christians simply think, oh, he's getting all scriptural Christianese on us. Well, it's all about the word, and the beginning was the word. And we probably have some picture of, of some kind of like classic Bible banger, banging his word. And it's like, in the beginning was the word. It all starts with the word. I, can, I had some childhood traumas from that. Okay. So... Erase those images because John is actually using a concept that's meant to teach the secular society of the Greeks. Logos is a Greek word. And that Greek word means the reason for the universe. So what John is saying is in the beginning was the reason for the universe. And this reason for the universe was with God. And this reason for the universe was God. Because the ancient Greeks would sit around and talk about what the reason for the universe was. And they all be believed that there was some kind of cosmic catalyst that was at the root of it. None of them were faithless. 
In, in terms of the most intellectual of the day and in ancient history, they all had a faith system. They all believed that this had to have come out of some kind of created order. And it says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We've been watching The Lord of the Rings with my kids because my wife decided that was a good idea. And there's been a lot of Lord of the Rings movies. Are you guys aware of this? Uh, so we, 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 it's turned into about, like, I don't know how many movie nights worth of Lord of the Rings. And if I'm being really honest with you, I have no idea what the plot line is of The Lord of the Rings. It's, it's the most complicated thing because I've never read any of the books. And all I know is, is there's a ring and there's light and there's darkness. And all the other stuff I never follow. I could just come in at any of the Lord of the Rings stuff. And then I guess they made a Hobbit series on top of that. And I have no idea what's happening in all of it, but there's a ring and there's light and darkness. When they get into a battle, it's like, it's not just like uh, people on the other side. It's always like evil entities, right? Like demonic looking things. And I, I realize it's meant, I think, I don't know if Tolkien meant this when he, he made the movie. Um, and and, he, and my, my boys already understand the plot line and are explaining it to me and they haven't even seen the whole series. And I've probably seen the whole thing three or four times. Um, I forget who it said. Maybe Mark Twain, he said something about, I have the blessing of common taste. If I like it, the common man will like it. I take that for myself. I have the blessing of common taste. Lord of the Rings is a little bit too up there for me. I don't, I don't, anyway. So light and darkness, I get that part. And they're fighting darkness constantly. What's interesting in the world is, is if you look at battles, I mean, if you, if you even look at like the Taliban right now, you can make them evil because they represent evil in many ways, sure. But they're people made in God's image. And so from the Christian perspective, every human being that carries darkness or is dangerous or whatever else, we first and foremost look at them as the Imago Dei. We cannot look at them as pure darkness. We look at them as deceived under darkness. And our goal is to actually bring them into the light, not just to slaughter them. Right, so, and I'm not giving any sort of, this is, has nothing to do with any political statement. Why do I have to say that every week? <laughs> so so the, the reality is, is the light and darkness thing. Is, the reason why scripture talks about it so much is because we're so thick-headed, we don't really understand where the light and the darkness and how it works. But it is simple, because when you, when you sense darkness and when you sense light, light feels good. Darkness feels bad. From the smallest child, you know that. I want to simplify your faith. It's about light and it's about dark. And Jesus has this concept of the word, which in Greek, logos, means the reason for the universe, and it's light. That's a concept. The true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So there's this example that Keller uses of a space heater. And we all know the use for a space heater. It's to heat your room. If you took a space heater, or let's say you took a car, and I took my car and I tried to use it as a boat or to fly off a cliff, it would not work. 
because the car is not a boat. The car is not a plane. A space heater can heat space, but if I try to heat my water with the space heater, I die. I can say that it feels, it feels like a space heater is a good idea, and I can put the space heater in the water, but I will suffer the consequences of me feeling like that's a good idea. We can't trust our feelings. At the same time, I think the church needs, and maybe not any of you, because you guys are some of the most compassionate people. Sometimes the church, at least of today, feels like it doesn't care about people's feelings. Try working on a relationship without caring about someone's feelings. We, we had, we had, speaking of a marriage, we, we had a marriage uh, morning with, with a number of you couples uh, yesterday morning. And, and one of the tools we've, we've learned is, is when we're walking through something, we're processing feelings. Not because feelings are invalid, but because in one sense you can't trust the feelings, you have to process the feelings to get to the core of what's really going on. Why? Because feelings are flipping crazy. And guess what, guys? Women know that their feelings are crazy. <laughs> I'm going to get there. <laughs> guys, your feelings aren't crazy. Your feelings are typically dangerous. Like, women's feelings crazy, men's feelings dangerous. Like, right? I mean, that's what I noticed. Like, my deep, like, my bad feelings, they're more dangerous. Hers are a little bit, maybe a little cuckoo sometimes, but mine, mine, like, are way beyond that. They're more in the realm of, like, super not good, dangerous, dark stuff. Like, so guys, you don't get, you don't get to be scot-free on this. The point is, is that our feelings cannot be trusted. When we trust our feelings as an authority, we run into problems. When we don't address feelings as valid in the sense that they need to be addressed, we're also stupid, and you will no, never make any ground at capturing people's hearts. Jesus cared about people's feelings, unless they were part of the religious system that was drifting people away into utter torment. He did not give them the time of day. Everyone else, he addresses them with absolute compassion. Does he change the standard of truth? No. He actually re. Uh, reframes truth. He reframes the standard of the law. And when you don't understand, uh, or when, when the law, and many times in the church today, when the church, when Christianity has become this standard that no one respects, or that it represents heaviness, a burden, judgment, shame, a political side of one or the other, it starts to get into the realm where you can even feel the feelings that are conjuring up. And what you miss in the midst of that is the eternal security of the absolute Logos that is at the heart of what God is offering. And Jesus comes into the most turbulent, political, oppressive moment in Jewish history and reframes the entire law and the prophets. And he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And do not look at the commands as null and void. But look at them like this. And later in John, we started in John 1, but in John 15, he says, this is my commandment, my word to you. My commandment is this. In other words, there, there's so much of his people that have been under the heavy burden of the commands of the religious system. And Jesus comes in and goes, here's mine, love. And even some of us today, it's just like, yes, love. But what kind of love? And Christ goes on and he says, this is the kind of love, the love that I have for you. 
And greater love has no one than this, than you lay down your life for his friends. Because he defines love as sacrifice and laying your life down. And when you try to get love apart from sacrifice, you miss the cross. And when you miss the cross and you just talk about the sensations of love, you start the process of those created in God's image that feel and connect with concepts that we're meant to connect with. But if you never get to the cross, if you never get to the purpose of his love, if you never get to the the image and the act that demonstrated his love and that he invites us into, then you never get the place that a Christian is meant to show, here's what the commandments that are crushing you are meant to look like. Watch my love and watch me lay my life down. When we understand that he came and he died, in love, then you can trust his love because you know he's for you. And when the world doesn't believe, we're for them. And then in John 17, two chapters later, he builds upon this concept and he says, if you want to understand eternal life, that they know you, yada, know intimately, face to face, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. And in verse 12, while I was with them, I kept them in your name which you have given me. See, here's, here's the thing. Jesus reiterated concepts of identity that we're still confused by. Um, a number of months ago, I used this concept of like Babe the pig. Remember Babe the pig? Yeah. And there's this, there's this uh, in his movie, right? He kind of tries to become a sheepdog or something, right? Herding sheep as a pig. Because he feels like it, right? That's Babe. Does anyone remember Babe? Okay. Oh, a lot of you. You just don't want to admit that you all have a soft spot for a, a pink pig. Good. Okay. So, what is babe? (laughs) Babe is an example of of our modern individualism. Meaning, I can choose whatever I want to be and do. But babe is a pig. In real life, there are no pigs that are going to hurt anything. Right? Because babe's a pig. Babe named himself. He renamed himself from the inside. He created that meaning. Jesus shows us that we, we long for meaning, and that you have a father that names you, and he named him. He goes, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. There's a concept here that he's saying, is that his father, the father that sent Jesus, is the beginning, the logos, that starts everything, that names you, sees you, and wants you, and pursues you. And from that, you have an identity because of him. There's not a single person on the planet that can change the person that birthed them. You can change a relationship. You can change a feeling. You can work through trauma and dynamics, but you cannot change the person that gave you life. And every single person has the desire that that person that gave you life wants you, loves you, and sees you, and speaks purpose over you. That's the message that Jesus is trying to say, first and foremost, the Logos Let me show you who he is. And I kept them in your name, God. Meaning, I connected them to the family that says their identity comes from you. They don't create it. They receive it. It's an external identity, not an internal identity. Now, there are things that I think there's a value for us to to find out what do I burn for and what do I need to go after with my life? What have I been gifted with? What are my unique characteristics that I can contribute to the world with? But the reality is, is if you don't start, that your utter meaning in life is the fact that there is a God that has created you 
and that holds you by his name, you will never fulfill the longing in your heart because the fullness of who you are is that something externally, you have to discover your meaning. You can't create it. Uh, this was way easier in previous generations. Uh, for instance, if, uh, if, you, if you came from, from a, a family that came from a small town anywhere on earth, that small town, like Jesus, for instance, they were a, a bunch of carpenters. And so when Jesus was growing up, he probably literally had two options, even Jesus. It was to become uh, a rabbi or to be a carpenter. And to become a rabbi, you had to be really, really good, which is why all his other buddies were fishermen or tax collectors or whatever. And these fishers of, of stuff, the Jews didn't even like fishing. They don't even, still don't really like fish. If you go to Israel, you'll hardly find any places that sell fish because they don't really even like it which was a shock to me because everything's about fish in the New Testament. <laughs> it's because it was this, this small little group of guys whose dad was a fisherman, so they all had to be fishermen. They had no options. So what would their dad, what did Peter's dad tell him? Peter, you're a fisherman. That was his, it came from outside. He, he was told, discovered, he did not create his identity. And we have the same thing in culture today. We, we, in previous generations, there was much more a communal, a family honoring, right? Where, where it's like you take care of the family, you join the family business. The American dream, as wonderful as it is, or the Western dynamic, has, has changed the narrative because that wasn't perfect, right? You had very little options. And then what if you were oppressed or what if you were in a, a horrific situation? Then your whole family is, right? And then there were all kinds of systems that oppressed people. And it was terrible in many ways. And I'm not un undermining that at all. But what I am saying is, is there was an innate reality that my purpose was who I am in my family, right? And that's all I am. Or that my goal in life is to help this family in some way progress. And we've lost that a lot. We've lost that, and we've shifted in a mindset. And we can't really go back because today there isn't the concept of that. Our own parents have told us to discover by creating purpose, by finding the things that you're passionate about and going after them. And again, as a follower of Jesus, if you believe that in the beginning you were named and you're still trying to rename yourself, you will never satisfy the aching in your being. You never will. You can't. It's impossible. And, and, here's, and here's where I want to land. Meaning in life comes down to this. Having purpose and making a difference. Having purpose and making a difference. And the church of Jesus, the purposes he gave it, ultimately has several concepts. And it starts with worship. What are you going to worship and lay your life down for? Are you going to understand that the presence of God will set the priorities of your life and that idolatry, worshiping something else, will ultimately lead you into a place that will not bring light, it will always bring dark, darkness? Worship. In other words, be with him. Be with Jesus, to quote John Mark Comer. Secondly, there's this concept of, of discipleship. The three purposes of church, worship, discipleship, and mission. And discipleship has to do with some sort of formation process where you become the disciple and follower of Jesus. The fellowship element, there's fellowship and there's formation. The fellowship isn't just that you have a bunch of chatty, nice friends that also love Jesus. The fellowship is that that's the place you come into belonging and identity. In discipleship, you understand who you are as a follower of Jesus in a family 
that ir- irrelevant of what your family that birthed you looks like, this is what you're invited into. So you be with him in the presence of worship. But you become like him in discipleship, in fellowship. And then thirdly, in mission, you go after the ministry of the needs of people. And you multiply yourself. You make disciples of all nations. In other words, you act like him. You do what Jesus did. And we we mess up our purpose because we don't realize that it's as simple as simply being with him, becoming like him, and doing what he did. And when the church understands that at the heart of who we are is that we're following him into those three things. And sure, your gifts are great, but my gifts can be taken away from me. And if he can be taken away from you, it's ultimately what you worship. Viktor Frankl, the famous uh, World War II concentration camp survivor who wrote what he observed of the people that survived in the concentration camps. What he didn't mean was survive. He meant that survived with, with a mindset that endured. And he said to have a mindset that endured, you had to have some kind of transcendent perspective on life. Meaning, some people could get by by saying, I'm living for my, my wife that's looking down on me. That was transcendent. That could not be taken away from the death camp. But if it was something of, of a career, if it was something of any sort of performance, if it was a relationship that could be taken away, and they lost the will to live when a loved one died, as tragic and horrific as it is, if your purpose is taken from someone's death, they were your purpose. That's not a guilt and shame thing. That's just the reality. If your purpose can be taken from you, it's not eternal. The Christian project reframes the purpose of humanity. And why they could give their lives is because they had a transcendent, eternal conviction that my life is not my own, and my life continues on, and I'm already dead. It's so dark, but it's so good. If you'll allow that to go deep, it's not bad news, it's good news. It means you can hold loosely everything that he's put in your hands. It means all your gifts, all your talents, all your accomplishments that can be gone with one virus. You can hold them right here. And you can say, this is really difficult to let go on, but I'm willing to. And if we start back in the way things were, holding things the way we held them, you haven't learned what a pandemic invited you to learn. Will you hold your purpose in front of you? Or will you serve a meaning of life that cannot be taken from you? That a death camp can't take? That a relationship can't take? That a job can't take? That a career can't take? Why don't you stand? Worship team, you can come up and start, uh, and start playing. Why don't you just close your eyes, and I just want to pray some things over us. I want to let the person of Jesus comfort us, and I want to let the person of Jesus convict us. Where are you looking for meaning?
Where are you really looking for meaning? I don't want your agreement even with Scripture. Jesus isn't looking for your agreement with Scripture. He's looking for you to encounter his sacrificial love. I need to do this daily, daily. And if you need to hold something out in front of you, in your mind's eye, just put that thing that you're absolutely petrified will be taken away from you. And these are going to be amazing things. It's going to be things like the person you're in love with. Hopefully that's your spouse. It's going to be your kids. It's going to be, it's going to be the career that you laid your life down for that has purpose. That's a good career. What's the thing that brings meaning to your life that you can't let go of? That this world could take from you? Beautiful Jesus. Send your spirit to comfort. I find when I really let go of things, he comforts me first. I think there's many of us in the room where he's needing to comfort you so that you can let go of some things. I really feel that. The Holy Spirit is named comforter. And he's the one that convicts. Because you can't be formed, you can't be discipled. You can't be disciplined in a way that you become more like Jesus without the kindness of God, the comforting nature of the Holy Spirit, convicting you, but first and foremost, comforting you that it's okay to trust him. It's okay to trust him. And if this is all new to you, I just invite you just to just be present in the room. Just allow some peace to just touch your spirit. And don't even worry about belief at the moment. Just invite you into the peace of God. And those that know what it is that they put in front of them, Holy Spirit, we ask you, Give each of us a clear word of why we can give it to you. Why we can lay our lovers before you, our kids before you, our careers before you, our dreams before you. Our talents, our gifts. You have to start with the Logos. 
the reason for the entire universe. And Holy Spirit, we invite the eternal reality of your breath to invade our spirits right now, to fill us, to rejuvenate us, to strengthen us, to lift our heads, to take away our shame, to put a covering on our guilt, to speak to us and remind us that there's nothing that we do to attribute our eternal, grace-filled, perfect reality with the perfect God other than you died, took everything on your back so that I could receive nothing out of striving, nothing out of performance, nothing out of working at it. Last thing. I'm sorry I'm taking my time, but here's, here's the thing is, is I can't convince you of these things. I'm trying to introduce us to what only the Spirit of God can do. We're going to be officially done. I don't know what time it is, if you need to go get kids and whatnot, but Cameron's going to lead us. And I, I want to invite you, um, those that are going to be on prayer team, if you can start to make your way forward. I feel like there are, a, there are a number of us that need to respond in some way. So as he plays, respond. Come forward just in an act of declaration saying, I'm letting it go. If you can't feel like you can let it go, just come and worship. Just come and worship. And if it's, if it's like, if you're not ready, just receive his peace. And just welcome to the family wherever you're at. But if you know today you need to give him something, come up and allow us to pray with you and allow the comforter to show you why you can trust him. Thank you, Father, for what you've done today. Thank you for what you're doing right now and that you're going to continue to do that we're sensitive to. And we bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.